Hello and welcome to Adorium Conversations. My name is Andrew Thomas and today I've got the great pleasure of chatting with a legend. Um, he's the king of vitamins, the vitamin king himself, Patrick Holford. How are you, sir? I'm feeling great. Oh, you're feeling great. Where, where are you at the moment? I'm in London. So you um, live in I, Wales as well, didn't you? Yeah, I would prefer to be there. Uh, we have a farm, Forest Coal Pit Farm, just, just north of Abergavenny, tucked between Sugarloaf Mountain and the Hlantoni Valley, uh, where my oh, yeah. son raises pigs, them. rare breed pigs. And uh, we have a retreat center for people to come and get super healthy. But of course, they're not allowed to come right now. So it's a bit quiet. And, you know, everyone's worried about 5G. Well, I don't think we've even got 0.5G, uh, you know, where we are. <laughs> I so know, I spoke to you there. I spoke to you there. Yeah, it's a bit. So we, we figured it would be better to uh, go back to London, uh, where we've got a lot of good internet connection, because during this pandemic, I've been uh, sort of virtually all over the world, uh, from China to South Korea to Japan to California, America, and so on. And uh, you need a good Wi-Fi signal to do that. Well, it's, it's a really good signal and you're looking fantastic and really well there. Um, can we just go a little bit, go back to your background, Patrick? You mm. started as a psychologist or studied psychology. How did you get from that into nutrition? I went into psychology because I was really interested in sort of the optimal human potential. You know, who are we? What's life all about? And all that kind of stuff. So yeah. as a teenager, I was reading you know, Herman Hesse and Jung and looking into Tibetan Buddhism and, you know, Indian stuff and philosophy and all that kind of thing. And uh, I, I then got very interested in the brain. And I, I, I kind of had two main focuses. One was intelligence. I thought that what the world needs is intelligence. You know? And uh, I, I, I had a post recently on vaccines and someone said, shame there isn't a vaccine against stupidity, I thought that would be good. <laughs> and the other area I was interested in was schizophrenia because one in a hundred people suffer from this terrible condition. Many of them end up committing suicide. Uh, and if there was something that could be done, that would be really, really interesting. And then sort of two things happened. The first was the schizophrenia. I came across a randomized placebo control trial giving a very high dose of niacin, vitamin B3, versus placebo to uh, newly diagnosed schizophrenics run by the research director of psychiatry in Canada. And the results were exceptional. And uh, uh, I remember showing it to my professor and he said, oh, load of nonsense, vitamins, whatever. But you know, we'd been taught to look at randomized placebo controlled trials. I later learned, by the way, it was the first ever randomized placebo controlled trial in the history of psychiatry. So, um, I Where was on, this, Patrick? Where was this? Which uh, university? Uh, well, it was, it was in Saskatchewan. And uh, it was very interesting. I actually jumped on a plane and went to meet Dr. Abram Hoffer, who was the head of psychiatric research. And the story goes back a little further. There was a British psychiatrist called Humphrey Osman and, uh, in the 40s and 50s. And he had a theory uh, that what was happening in schizophrenia uh, by the way, Freud was big in those days. Everybody was talking about schizophrenic mother and whatever. Yeah. And he had a theory that these people were actually hallucinating, that they were producing an endogenous hallucinogen that was making them see things, hear things, etc., 24-7. And he had a theory that it was something to do with adrenaline. 
Uh, and uh, he got completely ostracized by the British psychiatric community and thought, fuck it, I'm off to Canada. <laughs> and in Canada, he met this man, Abram Hoffer. Abram Hoffer uh, was quite a genius, very bright man. Uh, I remember him telling me that when he had to go to school, he had to ride an hour on horseback. Right? He did very well in school. He became a genius chemist and uh, he ended up being a grain chemist. What else is there to do in, in, uh, in Saskatchewan? Then went into medicine, then went into psychiatry. And what they did, and he became in charge of all of the psychiatric units in um, Saskatchewan. And they started to truly observe their schizophrenic patients. And they developed a scale of disperceptions. Uh, you know, disperception would be seeing something, hearing something, feeling your body is really large or, you know, a whole lot. Have a, a very useful scale of disperceptions. And their logic was that the brain, the sensory system, is not processing information correctly. Uh, and then they made an, a genius uh, discovery. I mean, this was very, very neat. They looked at all of these disperceptions and studied the literature. And what they found is they were incredibly similar to the Native Americans uh, in North America when they consumed peyote, uh, which is a hallucinogenic cactus. There were, there were just, you know, a lot of similar disperceptions. So, they went off and collected blood and urine samples from the Native Americans on peyote, which is interesting. <laughs> Hazakite. Uh, yeah. And uh, also blood and urine samples from the schizophrenics. And they found something that is always in the urine of somebody when they take peyote um, and is in 73% of schizophrenics, but not in normal people. Uh, so they thought they'd found that, you know, something chemically interesting. Yeah, and correlation there. Exactly. And to cut the story sort of quickly, what they then found um, was that adrenaline can be turned into something which they called adrenochrome that makes you hallucinate. And they worked out that chemically speaking, the antidote would be a large amount of, of B vitamins. And they had a patient uh, who was, had catatonic schizophrenia who was basically dying. And in catatonia, you're like sort of as stiff as a board, you don't respond to anything. So they put a tube down his throat and poured in two grams, 2,000 milligrams of niacin, the RDA, uh, which is the ridiculous dietary arbitrary, um, <laughs> is 18 milligrams. So they put a very high dose of niacin, B3. And uh, by the way, the, the, the classic deficiency of B3, which is called pellagra, are the three Ds, which is diarrhea, dermatitis, and dementia, or you start to go crazy. Yeah. So there is a link between B3 and craziness in extreme deficiency. Anyway, the, the guy uh, completely recovered, uh, both didn't die and from his schizophrenia. So they set up the first ever what they called double dummy trial, where when they got a new patient diagnosed with schizophrenia, you know, every other one went on the niacin high dose um, versus the placebo. And they had a remarkable effect. So I flew out there and I met this man and I said, how many people have you treated with this, uh, you know, mega vitamin approach, which is completely new to me. And he said, uh, around 3000. And I said, what's your success rate? And he said, 85% cure. And I nearly fell off my chair. I said, I've never seen a cured schizophrenic. What is your definition of cure? And he said, free of symptoms, able to socialize with family and friends and paying income tax. Now, I'd never seen a schizophrenic pay income tax, you know? So my next question was, I want to meet some. And yeah. I, I hung around, I met about 12 people. That's not when you came to Wales, though? 
Not when I came to Wales, no. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, I met people diagnosed with schizophrenia who were as sane as you or I, whatever that might mean. Um, and, uh, and then I said, I've got one more question for you. Um, can I become your student? And uh, which I did. And then there's one more part to this story because a man brought his son to be treated. Uh, it came up from California, Carmel. Uh, his son was schizophrenic. He'd heard about Abram Hopper's research and uh, the son got better. And the father was so delighted, he bought 50 copies of Abram Hopper's book, went back to Carmel and gave one to every single doctor in the county. One of the doctors had invited to tea um, Dr. Linus Pauling. Now, at that point, Dr. Linus Pauling, uh, it's the only man ever to have won two Nobel Prizes. He had 48 PhDs, you know, mainly honorary. Uh, you know, we can talk about him because he's an absolute genius. I know. He I've saw been the book. About him. Yeah, he saw the book and he borrowed it. In fact, I'm wearing a T-shirt. This is our campaign, uh, uh, change.org slash vitamin C for UK. And Love the man it. on here is Linus Pauling. So Linus Pauling is the greatest genius in the world of chemistry. Albert Einstein called, you know, was yeah. asked, are you a genius? He said, no, if you want a real genius, it's, it's Linus Pauling. He is the father of molecular uh, uh, biology. He's the father of modern chemistry. He, um, for, I mean, he, he loved, I mean, this is the true mark of a scientist. Um, he loved things that didn't fit. Like, I mean, for example, everyone knew ether made you unconscious. Nobody knew how. So he sat down and thought about it and published a paper on the chemistry of unconsciousness. Isn't that a wonderful exam question? <laughs> what is the chemistry of unconsciousness? And that's the birth of modern anesthetics. Uh, so throughout his life, he was doing things like that. But also um, he was working with Einstein and after Einstein died, took over his peace activism against nuclear bomb testing. And for that reason, he got, um, it was McCarthy era, he got labeled a communist, which he wasn't. His passport was confiscated. He couldn't leave America. And he wanted to get to Oxford to meet Madeleine, the French scientist who had some data that would give a clue to the structure of DNA. And uh, 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 Watson and uh, Crick, Francis Crick and James Watson were paranoid because they said, you know, if Linus Pauling gets his data, he's gonna beat us, he's so bright. <laughs> but anyway, he couldn't leave the country, couldn't get the data. And he guessed slightly wrong Thus, they got the Nobel Prize. He didn't, but he would have. He would have had three. He would have had three. Exactly. And in fact, he deserves a fourth because what happened was when he got this book, and by then, uh, Abram Hoffer was also using vitamin C. And we know that when you have scurvy, you develop hallucinations. Yeah. And I'll give you a lovely example of that, of a lady who's just come off a mechanical ventilator. Uh, what, and then he started to study vitamin C. And what he soon realized was every single animal makes it from glucose. It's basically existed. I mean, all of life is oxygen based. So we are an oxygen based life form. And since the beginning of oxygen based life forms, there's always been vitamin C, which is an antioxidant. If you like, it mops up the exhaust fumes of an engine yeah. uh, um, uh, uh, that runs on, on oxygen, which we do. So it's, it's an incredibly old uh, molecule that exists in, you know, all oxygen based life forms all of which make it, except for primates, the guinea pig, the campybira, which are basically fruit-eating jungle rodents, a fruit-eating jungle bird called the red-vented bulbul bird, a couple of Amazonian fish, the Oscar ornamental fish and teleost fish. Everyone makes it, except for us. I mean, a goat makes 15 grams a day. One gram is 20 oranges. 
And if you expose a goat to a virus or to stress, they will increase their production up to 100 grams. And he just thought this was very interesting. He also was fascinated by the fact that you only need about 40 milligrams, which is half a lime or something, to prevent scurvy, where the collagen in the body breaks down, your teeth start falling out, your gums bleed. And by the way, people who develop scurvy inevitably die of pneumonia, right? So this is all going to be very relevant when we come yeah. to COVID-19. And, you know, you need a tiny amount, I mean, almost invisible amount. And yet, that's 40 milligrams. You can give someone um, uh, 100,000 milligrams, 100 grams, no toxicity. Now, he'd never seen that. I mean, water, if you drink 10 liters of water in one go, you can die. So we're talking about uh, many times less toxic than water and incredibly vital to everything. So he's basically spent the last 39 years of his life studying vitamin C. And he noticed that animals that make it generally don't get viral diseases. And that's why right now, all our cats and dogs and sheep and goats and pigs and horses, and you know, they're all exposed to SARS-CoV-2, you know, the coronavirus. They're all exposed, we're all exposed. Yeah but they don't get it. And he thought that was very interesting. And he also noticed that these animals don't generally get cancer. So, I mean, one of the chapters in my book, Flu Fighters, is why goats don't get colds. You know, have you ever seen a goat with a cold? Do no. goats get breast cancer, prostate cancer, colorectal cancer? You know, generally not. Um, so he dedicated the last 39 years of his life to doing nothing other than studying vitamin C, its chemistry, its clinical effect. So this, so, this, so this guy, you people, if, if people don't know him, he was the greatest chemist of his generation. Mm. Like you say, he won two Nobel Prizes. Ever. 48, yeah, ever. Won yeah. 48 PhDs. Didn't, I read, because I've been reading his book, and I, it's a great book, not his book, but his biography. Didn't he have a liver disease that he, he kind of, help cure himself or heal himself with vitamins that come before or after he kind of got interested in no i don't really know about that i mean sometimes you know the people who've tried to knock him and by the way if you if you're into science and you read his papers they are just exquisite you know i mean the chemistry is just exquisite no he died I he lived for 30 years. He had this liver disease that, you know, mm. the prognosis was pretty bad at the time. And he treated yeah. it. He basically gave his liver a chance to rest. So he well, cut out sugar. He cut out salt. He took a lot of vitamin D, I think it was, and C. And yeah. he did that for 14 years. And then he lived for another, you know, he lived 30 odd years after he had a bad prognosis. When he, prognosis, sorry. Yeah, was, yeah. Well, you tell me something I don't know. So I will certainly look that up. I mean, we know he died at 93 from prostate cancer. And by the way, we nearly had a falling out uh, because I had got onto the link between milk and prostate cancer, which is a, now a very well-established link. Um, yeah. And he, did he and, believe uh, that? Hmm? No, he, he was, it? he was, no, he was, you know, in the generation of, you know, of having sausage and bacon and eggs and milk and, you know, milk's a good thing. So he didn't really go down you know that route and it was actually wonderful because i filmed him a few months before his death and i remember because i arrived there with my film crew he was working on something which is only now really entering cardiology and that was something called lipoprotein a and um 
is quite exquisite. So we know that lipoprotein A is a very significant marker for cardiovascular risk, and it goes up when your vitamin C level is down. So there's a very strong link between vitamin C and cardiovascular disease. And I remember at the time, you know, he was, he was lying in his bed. He had this big illuminated magnifying glass and a stack <laughs> of journals, and he was just studying. And I said, I'm going to need you in about 10 minutes. And you know, he said, how long for? It's about 45 minutes. So, you know, he got up and, you know, we got him in place. And he knew he was dying. I knew he was dying. And he gave this exquisite lecture, quoting references, statistics, this, that, and the other. But it was rather tangential. He seemed to be going off on some, you know, very bizarre tracks that made no sense to the topic. And I remember it as the director at one point thinking, do you know, I might have to just stop him and say, do you think we could get back to the lipoprotein A thing? You know, but I'm, you know, here's... Can't do that, as long as Paul in. I, exactly. And, and just as I was getting close to that sort of nervous moment of, you know, doing that, he said, and the reason I tell you this, and he brought these three fascinating strands of logic together, and it all started to become crystal clear. And I'll tell you a little bit of it because it sort of shows you the genius of, of the man. But basically, when you're vitamin C deficient, your collagen breaks down. That's the intercellular glue that holds you together. So naturally, your arteries, exactly, wrinkles and stuff. Naturally, your arteries are going to you know, be at, at risk. And what the body does is it produces something called apoprotein, which attracts the fat, called a lipid, becomes lipoprotein A, which effectively sticks to the artery walls and uh, repairs or thickens the weak spots. So in other words, he was claiming that, for example, during the winter in the Northern Hemisphere, when we run out of vitamin C, the body has an adapting process to thicken the arteries, which will stop you bleeding and dying from scurvy but in the long run, it's going to be bad for you if you keep doing that. Yeah. And, it's, and before he died, he, he looked me in the eye and he said, Patrick, follow the logic. Don't worry about the randomized placebo-controlled trials. They come later, just follow the logic. And that's what he did. And I remember in the 80s, um, I, I flew out to California and volunteered in a group that was working with people with AIDS, HIV, uh, who are all, you know, terminal. So there are groups of these people who were effectively going to die. And there was a lovely place called the Center for Attitudinal Healing. And then, for better or worse, I came across a few people who'd had crashing T-cell counts and carposis sarcoma, which is the cancer that occurs, and um, were now completely better. Their T-cell counts had normalized, their carposis sarcoma had gone, they were great. And in, in those days, in the sort of late 80s the idea was if you're hiv positive you will get aids and you will die yeah and um so what linus pauling did with two very very brilliant immunologists is they they took human t-cells which are the cells that get the hiv infection saturated them in different levels of vitamin c to prove that the cells were it was not non-toxic to the cell and then infected the cells um, with hiv and then measured the viral replication, which was done by something called reverse transcriptase, and showed a 99.8% inactivation of the HIV virus with vitamin C. Uh, they then repeated the study, but this time comparing it to cells saturated with the best drugs available, like AZT. Yeah. And the vitamin C was about 10 times more effective than the best drug available. 
Um, so they then uh, applied for a multi-center trial to actually do this not on human cells, but on human people and got the funding uh, from the National Institute of Health. And uh, they worked on this for about five years. It was a completely robust design. And about three months before the trial was due to start, the funding got pulled. And to this date, to this date, we don't know. So, so you know, in science, you, you look at an association, you know, do people with low vitamin D have more deaths from COVID? Um, secondly, you look at a mechanism, you know, how could this work? And then you run a clinical trial, ideally with a placebo group and so on. And, you know, since the 80s or even possibly before, every time the association is there, the, um, you know, the, 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 the me mechanistic explanation for it is there, then you just get to the point of clinical trial and then it gets killed. Um, you know, do you know how much it would cost, Patrick, to do those trials? Do you have any idea how much? Well, I've spoken to, you know, top scientists. I mean, one of my favorite is a man called Professor Harry Hemmeler. Uh, he's professor of public health. He's both a doctor and, a, and an epidemiologist and professor of public health. And he said it's not really, you know, it's not really necessarily the cost, you know, that holds these things back. Because also we're not... We're talking about non-toxic substances. Vitamin C is dirt cheap. Uh, so there's not a lot of ethics, you know, to get through. There's yeah. not a lot of downside and all the rest of it. So, um, but uh, for some reason it gets, you know, these things, I mean, that was a multi-center trial that would have cost quite a lot of money, but it's a good question. You know, why don't these things get done? I mean, it's something what I to explore, isn't it? Because like, they, I, I, you know, I've been watching the Last Dance, you know, the Michael Jordan documentary, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I can remember, and Magic Johnson's on it, who famously was the first kind of big celebrity, yeah. really, who came up and said he had HIV, he was HIV positive. He mm. looks amazing now. I mean, he looks yeah. better than Michael Jordan, and he's older than Michael Jordan. Mm. So I'm not. I wonder what his, you know, his thoughts are on vitamins and. Well, I'm sure you know stuff. the top the top athletes you know, are usually well plugged into this because their yeah. advisors, they know. I mean, I, I mean, last night I was looking at, I, actually, I went on the Bill Gates um, vaccine private blog group just for fun, you know, just to see what was being said in that area. And I looked at a picture of Bill Gates. I'm, I'm 62, he's 65. And my God, he looks bad, you know, oh, for 65. Well, I mean, he just, I, I just thought, God, he's, you know, he's, he's quite, he's quite aged. But anyway, that was just a sort of, you know, not saying yeah, yeah, anything yeah. about Bill this way or that. It was just yeah. an observation. But it was quite funny because uh, I obviously I blogged a couple of things about, you know, vitamin C, you know. And for those of you who don't know it, um, vitamin C, I mean, if you could look at the immune system and make a list of everything you could want a drug to do, you know, boost uh, T cells, macrophages, you know, enhance the immune system, make interferon, block the viruses, spikes, you know, there's a lot of talk yeah. about that. Um, be anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, you know, if you, if you, you know, if you, if you set out and just said, if we had a perfect drug that could do 12 things that we know affect viruses, um, what have we got? And the answer is you've got vitamin C. 
it, it you know it, it absolutely does them all so anyway i blogged a little bit about vitamin c and i'll share two of the comments because it kind of shows where it's at one lady said vitamin c is nonsense you only need it for scurvy and anyway high doses are dangerous uh they give you loose bowels and or, or diarrhea she said and gastric disturbance and headaches which was a new one on me and then she said and they interfere with the contraceptive pill so mr holford you're going to have a lot of lockdown un unwanted babies on your conscience <laughs> she says and i responded so i'd love to see your science on the contraceptive pill and the headaches because it's new for me and uh, by the way, I might suggest that if you are suffering from a potentially life-threatening viral infection, it could be wise to abstain from having sex. <laughs> Don't tell David Tabas all that. <laughs> Another doctor writes in and said, vitamin C, load of nonsense, doesn't do anything. And, um, and by the way, you know, the days of scientific analysis and evidence are over. Everyone needs the vaccine. And I wrote back and said, that's a very, very big statement, you know, coming from, a, coming from a doctor. So we don't do any scientific analysis on vaccines. I mean, you know, is that what you're saying? Um, anyway, but the point is, I mean, I, I, I have to tell you that on uh, Tuesday, I started feeling really tired. And I know. I, I spoke to you and I got to say, yeah. we, got, we are going to talk about COVID-19 because obviously yeah, yeah. we're in a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I spoke to you. You sounded awful. Yeah. I thought Patrick Hoffer's coming down with it. What's going on? Yeah, no, on Wednesday, I felt, you know, even more tired, a bit achy. And then Wednesday night, Wednesday evening, suddenly, wham, all my muscles are aching. I've got a splitting headache. I've got mucus, like sinus. Um, you know, my ears are hurting a bit. My throat's hurting a bit. And, um, you know, I'm definitely under major viral attack. You know, this is a flu, whether it's COVID-19, I don't know, but... Uh, so what I did, which is what I always do, um, and it's also what Linus Pauling did, um, is I started to take the equivalent of a gram an hour of vitamin C uh, plus zinc. So a tablet form, or do you drink that? I either. It's interesting for, tell, for people watching yeah, this to I mean, know what you, you know, do. I'm a little biased because I, you know, I formulate things and other people make them. So I've got something called Immune C and it has vitamin C and zinc in it. Not a lot of zinc, it's like three milligrams of zinc and 1,000 milligram of vitamin C. But if you, if you take 20 of them, you're up to 60 milligrams of zinc, which is the amount that has a very strong antiviral effect plus 20 grams of vitamin C. I also have a powder with the same thing. So actually what I did, because obviously what happens is when you're really sick, you, you can barely move. Uh, so you need to be prepared. So I've got a juicer and I juice ginger. So I make a, a whole pot of ginger juice and I pour it into ice cube trays. Oh, yeah, so cool. in my fridge, any one point in time, I've got 20 ginger ice cubes. And also for the hell of it, I do the same thing with lime or lemon juice. And so what I would do is stagger down to the kitchen, put the kettle on, get a cup, put in a teaspoon, which is about five grams of vitamin C, heap teaspoon. I put in a shot of this blueberry concentrate just for taste, but the blueberry is good too, called blueberry active. Pop a ginger ice cube and a lime ice cube, pour in the hot water and um, sip Pull that. Come up to bed. Yeah, go off to bed and have that over the next sort of four hours or so. And what I've learned is that if you do that from the very beginning of an infection, it's incredibly rare for the infection to last more than 24 hours. 
So what happened for me, I've also got a temperature, by the way. So I'm sweating, temperature, aching, et cetera. You know, you know, you know when you're under attack. Yeah. And then, so that really started at 6 p.m. on Wednesday. And then by noon on Thursday, suddenly it's over. You know, ah, oh, you just, you can feel it. It's very clearly over. And what I find almost inevitably is just before um, it ends, and it usually ends pretty rapidly, you get a, a sort of sweat. You know, there's this last kind of burst of sweat and wham, temperature goes down. Remember, the increased temperature is your immune system fighting. Kicking in. Yeah. So, you know, and then of course, so that's an 18 hour process in that case. I felt a little shaken, but not stirred, you know, for the next few hours. And by the next morning, I'm feeling, you know, I think I said to you 98%. Today, I'm feeling 100%. And I'm no longer taking, you know, the high dose vitamin C. So my, you know, my drink this morning uh, will give me a, this is called get up and go, will give me a gram of vitamin C. So um, how many do you take? I was going to, you know, so well, many things I want to ask you. Yeah. Patrick, yeah. But well, uh, here is what I take. I'm showing you what's in here okay. is uh, uh, this oily thing is, is, is omega three and a little bit of omega six. Um, the purple thing is vitamin C, which also contains what we call black elderberry. Yeah. and zinc um and the the so sort of yellowish thing is a multivitamin and mineral very high in magnesium and this uh thing here is uh phospholipids called brain food very good for the brain now normally i will take two of those a day so that will give me two grams of vitamin c now i don't want to take those two grams at the same time because it's water soluble and it's yeah. in and out in six hours so it's completely the opposite there is vitamin d in there um, now, what happens is in this, I've got a gram of vitamin C plus most of those nutrients. So I don't need this and this. So and I've had okay. this for breakfast and I'll have this for lunch or for dinner. Now, vitamin D stores. So you don't actually need to take vitamin D every day. I mean, in essence, it's made in, in exposure to sunlight. So if you get out a lot and you work outdoors and ideally, you know, you don't live as north as we do. Uh, but if you live on the equator, you know, you're going to make enough vitamin D. You don't need to supplement it for sure. There's not a lot in food. There's a bit in mackerel. Oily fish is the best source. But basically, um, you can, you, you know, rather than taking it every day, you could take it once a week, you know, seven times a dose, just as good because it stores. Yeah. So there are a lot of studies on pneumonia, for example, um, where I'm thinking of one just to illustrate the extreme end of this. Uh, these were people mechanically ventilated with pneumonia and they were given, normally if you go to a health food shop, they have a thousand IU of vitamin D, you yeah. know, which is a good general guideline, take a thousand IU every day or certainly throughout the winter would be good. Well, they gave these people 500,000 IUs, all right? A um, hundred thousand. Well, intra intravenous, can no. you do that? Or, no. Oral, uh, well, I, no, I guess they did. Yeah, yeah absolutely, it would need to be intravenous because they're on a mechanical ventilator. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I guess they must have done it like that, but they were given a thousand IU a day and, um, for five, 500, 500,000, well, they gave it a hundred thousand IU a day for five days. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a total of 500,000, very <laughs> high dose. These were all people who had low blood vitamin D and what happened is it halved their recovery times. So it halved the number of days they spent in the hospital and, um, it, it increased their blood level of vitamin D, which was below 50 which is deficient to above a hundred, which is probably optimal. So the only reason I'm saying this is that, is that what you want with vitamin D is to have your levels certainly above 75, ideally at a hundred and keep it there. Yeah. So 
um, and it stores. So just that's top what, it up, just top it up. What depending you want. So on your there's level. no point, for example, my vitamin C pill does not have vitamin D in it because there's no point of having vitamin D every hour during an infection. All you need to know is you've got enough in your system. Cover you. Now, yeah, now vitamin C is completely different. It's water soluble and you therefore need to have it frequently. And what we now know, and I think this is terribly important discovery, is that uh, my colleagues in America who are working in uh, intensive care units treating COVID-19 patients, and by the way, having zero deaths, zero deaths. No, I saw, I saw the Senate yeah. committee report and I watched it live when you yeah. told me about it. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. they are um, using intravenous vitamin C plus steroids and anticoagulants. We can talk about that. But they've been measuring their vitamin C level in their ICU COVID-19 critically ill patients. And every single one has scurvy levels of vitamin C, every single one without exception. Most of them have undetectable levels of vitamin C. Um, so the point is, even the, the critics who say the only function of vitamin C is to prevent scurvy, which is a very, very old school way of looking at vitamins, like the only purpose of vitamin B3 is to prevent pellagra, um, uh, are actually the treatment, the medical treatment of scurvy is intravenous vitamin C. So, and to make this sort of interesting, I had a lady contact me. She spent 10 days on a mechanical ventilator and uh, in a coma and uh, you know then when they took out the tube you know she's kind of hallucinating orange juice this is what was happening she was lying there hallucinating orange juice it reminded me of captain haddock uh crossing the <laughs> desert hallucinating you know the bar or whatever it is but she was literally hallucinating orange juice and they brought her because she couldn't speak she had the ventilator you know and they brought her a whiteboard. She just wrote, oh, orange juice, you know. And after four days, uh, one of the nurses actually gave her a squeeze, you know, of orange juice. And she was hallucinating that the fridge in the, in the ward that she was in was full of cartons of orange juice. She was absolutely convinced that that was the case. Anyway, she's now back home. She's doing very, very well. well. And, but the penny didn't drop for her. But her whole system was saying, you know, vitamin C, vitamin orange C. Orange juice. You know, and the crazy thing is, it's like, uh, I mean, there's so many randomized controlled trials, placebo controlled trials, which you then pull together to have meta-analysis. This is the gold standard of science, showing faster recovery from pneumonia, less time on mechanical ventilators, less time in ICUs. And of course, you know, the usual criticism, what happens if you look at the vitamin C studies? It's kind of interesting in a way, because uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate this with, with the most recent British randomized placebo-controlled trial. So what happened was they're taking two tablets a day of either placebo or vitamin C. And um, at the end of the trial, uh, which was across a winter, those on uh, taking the vitamin C had had a third less actual number of colds. Right? Now, a third less, you know, depending on the size of your study, and this was only, I think, 150 people, was on the borderline of statistically significant. You know, a very clear trend, but you, can't, you could say it could have just been chance, right? Yeah, yeah. So the next thing they looked at was number of days of having a cold. You know, so I could say, for, for example, I would say I've had two days, you know, uh, of, you know two, yeah. possibly three days uh, of symptoms. And then 
those taking the vitamin C had half as many cold days. And then the next question would be how many severe symptom days did you have? So in my case, I would say I had one severe symptom day and possibly one either side. And then it became very statistically significant. Now, what happens in a meta-analysis is they chuck all the studies you know, together that may have a variable dose from half a gram to five grams, whatever it happens to be. And you'll hear this line quoted so often, you don't get a lesser number of colds. Some people say, but you do get less severe colds and yeah. you do get a shorter duration of colds. Now, if you get a cold for seven days and four of them are severe versus three days and one of them are severe, as far as you're concerned, that's close to a cure. So that's what actually happens. But if you, and by the way, the, the man whose study is quoted as the Cochrane Review 2013 by Professor Harry Hemmler. And if you actually read the study, I um, mean, the, the guard, uh, uh, no, the BBC did a piece saying vitamin C, load of nonsense. And the lady quoted the sentence in the abstract, which is the summary that says you don't get a less number of colds. And you're not going, you, you, you get, a, you get um, exposed to a virus, you're going to get the cold, aren't you? And then yeah, obviously that, you just want to cut it. Exactly. Dead. Exactly. I, I said, well, if you actually go two sentences down, it says, but in studies with six or eight grams taken in the first day of an infection, you then get a statistically significant effect. And one eight gram study showed that 46% of people had no symptoms at the end of 24 hours. Now, what hasn't been done yet, which I would really love, and of course, you know, the perfect large scale study is to give people a handful of pills. They don't know if they're placebo or vitamin C. And on the first um, incidence of symptoms to take one pill an hour yeah. until you have no symptoms, because that's actually what works. That's what Linus Pauling did. He worked out that the RDA for vitamin C, which has many other effects, is very protective for cardiovascular health, should be two grams, which is what I take. There's a lot of other benefits of vitamin C. And then coming back to the lady on Bill Gates' blog who said, you know, you get diarrhea. Now, if I take eight grams today, I will get diarrhea. But over the time that I was sick, you know, I probably took, you know, up to 30 grams over 20 or so hours. Your body absorbed it, you said to me. Absolutely you? no bowel effects yeah. at all. And to be honest, even if you did have to visit the loo a little <clears> bit more, if it kills something that could kill you, that would make a big difference. So we've now sort of introduced the three stages. One is, what do you do to keep your immune system healthy? Vitamin D, yeah. vitamin C, zinc. What do you do if you actually get an infection? Ramp it and, up. And, um, and then the final thing is, what do you do if you're critically ill and you know, potential you know, life-threatening? Now, the point is, if you take the middle group, if we could instill in more of the public's consciousness what to do when you get an infection with vitamin C, then those people will not convert into you know, the critically ill. Now, the criticism of all this right now is, is there's no evidence for vitamin C in relation to COVID-19, which of well, course is, is true for everything. Not. You know, it's just too short. Yeah. Um, I mean, even the guys in America, this is called the frontline critical care 
uh, COVID-19 critical care group. These are professors of critical care who spend their entire life in ICUs saving lives. And they worked out, they were the guys who ran the scurvy thing. They worked out something that is a really interesting story. We've known for many years that the adrenal glands um, store very large amounts of vitamin C. And when you stimulate the adrenal glands with stress, they actually secrete vitamin C into the bloodstream at a level 100 times the normal vitamin C level. So in a sense, you could think in this context that vitamin C is actually a hormone that mm. is secreted under conditions of stress. Now, is that doing good for you or bad for you? Well, it's very good. I mean, I'll sort of explain this. I was involved in a car crash some years ago. Car was all smashed up, police came along and they picked me up and said, where do you want to go? I said, well, I was actually going to dinner with some nice people up the road. If you could drop me there, I'd be very grateful. And I went there and we had a very nice dinner and I was, you know, shaken, but not stirred. And later on that evening, suddenly wham, you know, my body had clearly had a big shock. hit. Yeah. But what allowed me to function in that moment is my body's adrenal hormone, particularly cortisol. So we've got a fight flight mechanism. And when you're under, it's not the virus that kills people, by the way, in the last stage, you get what they call a cytokine storm where the immune system overreacts. It's like it's gone into total panic mode and it causes this massive fever. It's and it can't stop, it can't stop. It can't it stop. Keeps, it's the yeah. same as uh, septic shock or septicemia, which is normally induced by a bacteria. I had that in February as well. Very interesting year. I'll tell you <laughs> a little bit about that. But basically what the, what the scientists had found was that this is sort of debatable that steroids, what you need when you're in this final stage for both COVID-19 and septicemia is steroids. That is um, drugs that mimic cortisol. And they're usually called prednisoline. So, you know, you've heard of asthma sprays, which have cortisol, steroids, yeah. you know, eczema creams that have steroids. So the ICU guys say that steroids make a very big difference. And there's criticisms of that. But what happens is that it seems the steroids work with vitamin C. And when you get to the point of scurvy, when you've got no vitamin C, the adrenals can't function, your body stops fighting and you die. So, so if you, I asked the Chinese, I, the Chinese have been doing a randomized controlled trial on vitamin C of people on mechanical ventilators. And I said, what are most people dying from? And they said, frailty. So there is a point where the body just quits. It can't fight anymore. And that's part of the adrenal response. So what the Americans learn is that if you give three grams of vitamin C intravenously every six hours, so 12 grams straight into the bloodstream over the day with steroids, they also use anticoagulants because you get a lot of clotting in the lungs. They have not had a single death. Well, I spoke to one, he'd had um, 50 patients and he said, I've actually had two deaths. One was an over 85 year old um, who had end-stage liver cirrhosis, and the other was an over 85-year-old who had end-stage lung disease. But he said, they did bring me one person who had a heart attack and died and came into our, our ward dead, and we did it anyway, and they came back to life. So they said, we've had one resurrection, and we've had two deaths out of 50. And I spoke to another guy, Jason Varon, uh, sorry, Joseph Varon in Texas, and he's had of his first 50, not a single death. 
Patrick, um, why, why, why aren't we, or are we, because we've talked about this in Wales and I've yeah. written four times to the health minister. He's busy, obviously, at the moment. But what I can't understand is you can go into Harvey Nicks and pay £80 and get intravenous vitamin C. And my friend just come off. Um, he wasn't on a ventilator, but he was on oxygen for yeah. five days. And they didn't even mention vitamin C to him. No. It, it's Why? I just don't understand why they're not I doing know. it. It is crazy because I know there's the sort of, you know, the black box thinking, you know, a plane crashes, you get the black box, you find out what's going on, um, it gets investigated, you know, you sort it out. And we just don't seem to have that. So there is this absolute block. And, you know, while on the one hand, I love the NHS, on the other hand, I hate the NHS. Um, you know, in a sense, I sometimes call it the fastest growing failing business in Britain uh, because it That's costs... What they say. You're not talking about the frontline staff. You're talking about the... the, the I'm talking about the, the system. I'm talking about the system because the point yeah. is, it's like, you know, we know that there's two thirds as many deaths in men as there are in women. We know there are two thirds as many diabetics as there are, uh, you know, in men as there are in women. We know that in Britain, we've got 4.3 billion diabetics. We've probably got over... 6 million diabetics and pre-diabetics. We've got a population of 65, 66 million. So we have allowed our nation to get to the point where, and by the way, you know, this is once, you know, it's age related. So, you know, we've got at any point in time, almost one in 10 of our population with a totally preventable, this is, this is you know, diabetes has two kinds, type one and type yeah, two. Yeah, type two is preventable. Yeah, and there's 98% of diabetes. And we have allowed our, uh, to get into this terrible state. And of course, it's these people are at very high risk. And by the way, um, sugar, because vitamin C is made in animals from glucose, sugar and vitamin C share the same transport systems. So there's an awful lot of what's going on in diabetes is actually to do with the inability to use vitamin C properly. So if you give vitamin C to diabetics, their blood sugar stabilizes, their HbA1c comes down, their insulin response becomes better. So there's a very strong link between diabetes and vitamin C. But the point is, and I, you know, I, I, I mean this in all the sort of best possible way, but you know, the medical profession have to take responsibility for the fact that we have created a nation where almost one in 10 have prediabetes or diabetes, which is a preventable disease. 10 years ago, maybe a bit more. Um, yeah, I've got a few books here. Say no to diabetes, okay? So I wrote well, Patrick, you know, yeah. you, I wanna talk about that because what you talked about years ago when you wrote that book, now yeah. it's common knowledge. You know, the papers yeah. are saying you can reverse diabetes, the program's on yes. it. Yeah. Well, everybody called you, not everybody, certain parts of the press would call you crazy for saying that. Absolutely but every, trash. everything, everything yeah. that you seem to have said, you know, we're talking about the gut health. I know you wrote a book yeah. on gut health and I'm a massive believer in that. And I've read this book called The Plant Paradox. I don't know if you've read it by Dr. Gundry. Yeah, he yeah. talks about how you can, yeah. you know, get your gut back to you, back to normal and, and, yeah. and healthy. Yeah. But everything you seem to have said, which is pretty much common sense when you know all about the vitamins and, and, and the body, it's come, you know, it's been proven right, isn't it? And it's about a 10 year lag. Yeah. So, so this was 2011 and it's totally science-based. And to give you an idea of this type one diabetes, where you lose the ability to make insulin, 
Um, so one guy who followed the advice in this book with type 1 diabetes reduced his insulin dose by 75%. So you can't cure type 1, but you can, you can make it well, a lot better. Are you saying that's, Yeah, that's because very interesting. I'll, I'll answer that in just one second. I went on GMTV. I said, give me a diabetic. And they gave me a diabetic and um, who was taking a double dose of metformin, which is the normal dose. Yeah. And uh, the diabetes specialist said, if you, to this patient, if you can get your blood sugar below six um, for a week, you know, seven readings, I'd be willing to halve your drug dose. Okay. So what I said to her is, right, you're going on my low glycemic load diet, which stabilizes your blood sugar, less carbs, the right carbs. Um, I gave her a vitamin strip. Uh, plus a mineral called chromium, which is very important because chromium makes the insulin receptor work properly. And I said, every day you're walking for half an hour. So, uh, you know, those were the three essential changes. And in three days, her blood sugar was below six. So we waited another seven days. On the 10th day, she halved her drug dose. Her blood sugar didn't go up. So on the 17th day, um, stopped her metformin. No, stopped and, it or halved it? No, halved it. no, halved it after seven days okay. at six. So halved it on day 10, stopped, stopped it, stopped the other half on yeah. day 17. And um, I'd said to GMTV, I need six weeks. Um, so uh, uh, she came back in six weeks and we measured her glucose and also something called HbA1c. And basically, uh, she'd been diabetic for 13 months. And at the end of six weeks, there was absolutely no test, no symptom, no anything that would have any GP diagnose her as diabetic. I thought they would be very excited about this, but I got trashed you know, by a doctor. Hillary Evans was on holiday, so unfortunately this other lady came in. And as you say, you know, they said there's absolutely no way, this was 10 years ago, that you can prevent, I mean, that you can reverse it. You can, you know, it's, it's under control or something. Yeah. But now we understand that you can. So here's an interesting thing. Type 1 diabetes, you lose the ability to make insulin. Now, if you think about the logic of this, if you eat less carbs, your body needs to make less insulin to take the sugar out of the blood. So following the same diet for a type two diabetic, a low GL diet would be good for a type one diabetic. Yeah. With the proviso that you have to do this in a stage way because you're gonna to have to reduce your insulin dose. Right? Now, you still have receptors for insulin like the docking ports. So if you get the receptors working better, which is what the mineral chromium does, you're gonna need even less insulin. Um, and we give chromium to both type one and type two diabetics. But with type one, you have to do it in a staged way because otherwise their drug dose is too high and they get a, a hypo. So that's why. Now, here's where it gets very interesting. And this is you know, very much front edge and I'm sure I'll be criticized for this. But um, the, the cutting edge of nutrition right now is that there is a process. The body has two fundamental um, um, operating systems. Uh, one is growth. And uh, when you're eating a lot of carbs, that's what it does. And that's why we're growing. And we have all the growth related diseases. Cancer is a growth related disease. And the other is repair. And when you starve, so if, you know, imagine in the old days, it's winter and you've run out of food, you've run out of berries and everything else. 
and you're kind of fasting, um, your body switches on a process called autophagy, um, which, which is a self-repair process. You start to gobble up all the damaged cell parts, yeah. damaged energy factories. Now, um, there's been a lot of research on autophagy, and we now know there are 20 factors that will stimulate autophagy, one of them being vitamin C. Um, so I did an experiment. I, I actually worked out a five-day diet that has no carbs, low calories. Um, some people, someone said, "Is it Atkins? It's high. You know, you have fat." I said, "No, it's definitely not Atkins because when you eat meat and milk, milk tells you to grow. That, that's yeah. why there's the link with prostate cancer." Which is why I think you you well. Yeah. Not, and I know about this because my my lovely ex had cancer twenty years ago and. Yeah. I read about the prostate can sorry, the, the hormones in milk and I went vegan then for quite a while, you know. Yeah. So you were, you were, you were, you beat um, Linus Pauling on that one. I well think. yeah, I mean there's nothing wrong with milk. The purpose of milk is to make babies grow. You know, all animals consume milk and once the infant is large enough they stop. You know, it's it's called breastfeeding. Uh, mm. we're the only animal that continues to consume breast milk. You know, if I said to you I'm you know, 62 years old, I'm still breastfeeding, you know, from another species of animal. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, that, that, it's, not, it's not actually part of our evolutionary design. No, I agree. We won't yeah. get heavy on milk, but the point is that milk does, milk tells the body to come out of autophagy repair. So in other words, if I go on a fast, but I have milk, I will not switch on autophagy. So we've learned how to eat a very specific, around 800 calories. So it's a sort of semi-fast, not too much protein, no meat, no milk. For a few just for, days. Just few for five days. days. I mean, okay, the great. book actually comes out on end of this month, the five-day diet. So I took a group of people down to Wales, and we okay. did this, and we ran I'm blood coming tests. on the next time. I'm coming on yeah, that one. Yeah, oh, fantastic. We ran blood tests and all the rest of it. But anyway, the point is, when they did this five-day process on animals who had type 1 diabetes, so they did the diet for five days, nine days off, five days, and they did it four times, um, the animals started making insulin again, right? So it reversed type one diabetes. Um, actually what happens is your body makes these things called stem cells, which are like the very base uh, cellular material. They started to remake the cells in the pancreas called beta cells, which then started to make insulin. So right now there's a human trial going on using this process to see if it can reverse type one diabetes. Now. One of the lovely things about this conceptually is at one end, you've got a bunch of people who haven't even bothered to check the scientific literature for the 10,000 studies on vitamin C, you know, including tons of randomized controlled trials. We're talking about 50 years of studies on vitamin C. They just haven't even bothered to check it because somewhere in their mind is this idea, vitamin C, it's a load of rubbish. You just need to eat an orange and not get scurvy. And then at the other extreme, we're into this completely evolved biochemistry, the leading edge of medicine, uh, where we have someone like Professor Thomas Seafried at Harvard Medical School, who's getting brilliant results with a virtually untreatable brain cancer called glioblastoma, using this diet plus lots of vitamin C. Um, we've got other studies going on on possibly reversing an autoimmune disease, which I'm sure if I wrote a book about this right now and went on telly, they'd hang, draw, and quarter me yet again. Which as, disease? Auto, I mean, there's, yeah. 
there's a book I've read that most diseases are autoimmune disease, aren't they? From I've got you know a slight case psoriasis and yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, what, yeah. what's your thoughts on autoimmune disease and and gluten as well? What do you think? Well, about I that? remember having a doctor with rheumatoid arthritis. When you have the measured factors that identify that you've got rheumatoid arthritis, and I told them what to do. And after a year, they no longer had any rheumatoid arthritis. They had no longer had any blood tests that show. So the conventional view is, oh, autoimmune, it's irreversible. But we are seeing a very big increase in autoimmune disease. And the point is here that the genes haven't changed. You know, so, so you know, if you think of the genes as the software and, the, and what you take in as the hardware and the biggest part of what you take in that you can at least control is your food. Um, if the genes haven't changed, uh, then what is it that's causing the increase in these problems? Now, what Linus Pauling did, this is another of his, you know, 100 discoveries, was he, he proved how a gene causes disease. So he's the first person to show how a gene can cause disease. And he then went on to show how the environment can change genetic expression. So let's take something like the BRCA, the breast cancer gene. So everyone's yeah. at the BRCA gene. And they go, oh my God, if I've got the BRCA gene, I'm going to die of breast cancer. And the reality is that half of people approximately who have the BRCA gene die of breast cancer and half of people don't, you know. So then the question is, well, what's different between the two? In the same way that we have, you know, 95 or maybe 98% of people who get COVID-19 flu, you know, have somewhere between a mild to unpleasant flu and get over it and then there's this small percentage of people um, you know who who die so my view is we need to very quickly find out how we identify those at risk and we've got the data to do that and then protect them yeah 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 Definitely. entire game changes um, if at the icu end this is a non-fatal disease. So the fear that everyone has is, oh my God, you know, if I get this, I'm going to die. That's the fear. But as Professor Ioannidis, the professor of public health at Stanford University worked out, actually the risk in an under 65 year old who doesn't have diabetes or heart disease is, ex is the same as the risk of death if you commute 10 miles to work and back every day. And, and that would then, you know, it has to change public health policy. And my view is if we did, um, you know, all three things, on the one hand, we sort out, I mean, it's very obvious, you come to the end of this and you look around ICUs and you go, who's done the best? Yeah. And then you say, well, what have they done? And then you do the same yeah. thing. So if we, if we get ICUs super efficient, I mean, in, during most of this pandemic, our risk of death for somebody entering an ICU was around 50%. The risk of death, 67% um, were leaving, mechanically ventilated, were leaving de uh, dead. That's now reduced to about 50%. In China, when they did a randomized placebo-controlled trial, there's almost unethical now on mechanically ventilated people either given 24 grams intravenously vitamin C or sterile water, they reduced the death rate from 35% on placebo to 24% <clears throat> on vitamin C. 
That was not with steroids. That was a third reduction. That's 24% versus what we had, which was 66%. So sort out what's happening in ICUs because this doesn't really need to be fatal. Educate people about what to do when you get an infection. I had no fear of this, you know, because I've, I've had 40 years, I've had flu, I've never not got over it. So I have no fear of it um, because I have the experience of it working. And then identify, it's very simple. I mean, for example, if you do from the NHS database, and maybe you have the same in Wales, you ask five questions. One, are you over 65? Yes or no. Two, do you have diabetes? Yes or no. Three, do you have cardiovascular disease or high blood pressure? Yes or no. Four, do you eat less than three servings of fruit and veg a day and also don't take vitamin C? Uh, either of those. And um, five, is your blood level of vitamin D, which a lot of people have had measured, you know, below 50. So what's the risk if you say yes to all of those versus no? And that sort of factor analysis would very quickly show us that, that actually there's this small group of people at risk and those are the people who we need to protect. Yeah, like in the care homes. I mean, do you think they are giving people vitamin C in the care homes? No. I mean, you see, the terrible thing is it's not, none of this is truly based on science, but as you've heard, vitamin C is dirt cheap. I mean, the cost in China, they shipped in 50 tons on the 2nd of February. And by the way, I was just looking at a report in the Journal of American Medical Association this morning on a study in Wuhan. And even though they didn't mention the vitamin C in it, they said the cases started to fall very sharply after February the 1st. They shipped 50 tons in on February the 2nd, which is 50 million grams. They gave it to hospital workers. They gave it to hospitalized patients. They started using it in ICUs. Now, if we did that in Britain, um, the, I mean, actually now it's sort of irrelevant. I mean, we had less than 20 deaths in London last week. So it's kind of, a, but at the peak of this, if we did that in the UK, the monthly cost is less than the cost of one ventilator. And what the Americans have learned is you don't want to get people on ventilators. Yeah. Give them oxygen, but don't get them on ventilators. So what we've got here is something that's absolutely dirt cheap. Um, it has way better science right now than any of the experimental drugs. It has absolutely no downside whatsoever. There's no risk in doing this. And it's the British bulldoggedness that just says no, we don't believe in vitamins. We think they're all, they don't, you know, it's irrelevant, it's old. And I get every day, I mean, for example, uh, I was reading something from a very nice professor, Tim Spector, who's very, you know, well-recognized. I've met him. And, uh, you know, he just had this throwaway line, no evidence for vitamin C whatsoever. So I wrote to him and showed him, you know, the tons of randomized control trials and all the rest of it. So it's actually the mindset We've just got to get out. I mean, I had a friend uh, recently or a few years ago who had uh, a massive stroke and was in a coma for two months. And I, and I was called in on the family meeting with everyone. Yeah. He had had no exposure to sunlight for two months. And I said, is it possible that you would just test his vitamin D level? And if it's a problem, I've got a kit here, you know, just, just a pinprick. I didn't want to say give vitamin D. Uh, I, I wanted to get it tested because if it's tested and low in a way they've got a response. This was the stroke recovery unit. So they yeah. specialize in stroke recovery and they refused. 
And what is that mindset that is refusing? What is that mindset that is refusing doing something for which there is evidence, there is absolutely no safety risk at all? I mean... But, the, but they, they're doing it, like you say, in ICUs in, in um, New York. In China, in America, in, in China. South Korea, in New Zealand. Uh, in, in, I think in some places. Maybe, in maybe it just need, you know we need to talk about rebranding it because at the moment I think yeah. the, the only the positive thing coming out of you know apart from I know I talked a few weeks ago with a good friend of mine Jim Doty about compassion and a lot of yeah. people are showing each other compassion at the moment but I think at the moment it, it could be a really good time to kind of rip up the old kind of manual and say to people well let's work with medicine yeah. and these nutrients and vitamins and. And they can work together to, to help well, people because I think you know, so. it shouldn't be any, you know, it, it yeah. shouldn't be, you know, one death's bad. My, a, a friend of mine passed away from it. He was 58. And I don't think he would have, he wouldn't have died from the flu, but he right. obviously, you know, wasn't the fitness guy, I don't think. But, you know. Well, we've, you know, we've had people, we've had people whose husbands usually um, are. Why men? Why men? Why is it more men get this? I mean, you know, there's a simple fact that, you know, two thirds as many men have diabetes than women. Uh, so, you know, it could simply be, you know, to do with that. I mean, women, women are always more conscious about what they eat. Men yeah. have the attitude of, you know, it's irrelevant. I'll, I'll, I'll eat what I like sort of thing. So, I mean, we train, we've trained 10,000 nutritional therapists at our Institute for Optimal Nutrition. And they're nearly all women. I mean, we wish there were a lot more men who could then talk to men, but women, it's part of a woman's psyche to nourish and nurture and all that. So they're, yeah. they're just involved, you know, in that whole sort of, it's, it's nearly always men sort of eat what the woman, you know, tells them to eat. So I, anyway, but the, the thing is we've had, you know, people in critical condition where the, the wife has been begging, you know, to give them some vitamin C. And, uh, and they just won't. And then the usual rebuttal is we can't do anything until there's a randomized control trial. So for example, there's a very big uh, multinational trial going on at the moment called REMAP-CAP, uh, which is testing lots of drugs. So any hospital can sign up and say, I'm going to join this trial, testing this drug following the guidelines. They've What's added it called a again? What's it called? It's called REMAP, R-E-M-A-P-CAP. Okay. And um, they've added a vitamin C arm. So a hospital could choose to do that. Um, but so far, and I've been contacting all the support organizations across the world who are involved in this, um, I don't yet, I know there's no hospital in Britain who have chosen to do that arm but I've yet to find a hospital anywhere who has chosen to do the arm. So if you like, the mechanics is there. I don't know why that is, but there's a lot of money flying around right now. You know, mm. if you test my drug, you know, I will pay you, you know, X, Y, Z. I mean, it's, it's the vaccine thing, not talking about whether it's good or bad or whatever, but you know, you've got, I mean, the other day, the Oxford, you know, the, the, the results of the Oxford vaccine on monkeys came out. The Daily Mail said it was atrocious. Um, you know, it didn't work. And then the BBC said it appears to have been very successful. So you get two completely different reports. Then you had the Moderna vaccine 
and uh, the initial press release said great results and the shares shot up. And then out came the actual report, which said 20 percent uh, had a had a serious reaction, which required you know hospitalization. Whatever. So what I'm trying to say is that suddenly around vaccines, around drugs, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot but of also cancer. there's a lot of risk, isn't it? You think they're, yeah. this, they're trying to make a vaccine within the last you know six to eight weeks. And then you've got vitamins, which I'm not saying will replace a vaccine. You know, let's not talk about perhaps vaccines at the moment, but you know, this is years and years of evidence that they work. I mean, yeah. Patrick, you're 62, you look amazing. <laughs> and you've been, but you've, it's not just vitamins, you eat the right diet. I mean, we haven't got that long today. And I love, maybe we call this part one, because I think we should yeah. do a few more parts to this, but we've had a few questions from some of our members. And one of them was, there's an argument to say that we can get all the vitamins, nutrition from a good balanced diet. Yeah. Why would we therefore need yeah. supplements? Well, this is the biggest lie, you know, in, in nutrition, because then you say, do you eat a well-balanced diet? You go, well, yeah. I think I do. Yeah. yeah, I think I eat a well-balanced diet, you know. So we know that most people believe. And then what is a well-balanced diet? And the answer is, well, a well-balanced diet is a diet that gives you all the vitamins you need. You know, I had a classic on this. I actually went on TV with the head of the Dietetic Association. And uh, it's a bit cheeky. I knew she's very, she doesn't like me at all. And we were going to talk about supplementation, <laughs> right? Why, so why we, didn't she like you? Uh, well, you know, I, that's, uh, you know, I don't know why she doesn't like me. But anyway, uh, what happened was uh, there we were sitting in the green room, you know, before we went on. And we, I just got chatting and whatever. And I said, do, do you take any supplements? She said, well, yes, I do. I take an RDA multivitamin, right? So anyway, there we were in the TV studio and I said, you know, Catherine Collins, you, you represent the British Dietetic Association. Uh, do you believe you can get all the nutrients you need from a well-balanced diet, right? And she said, yes. Right. And I said, and do you, you know, as chief dietitian, eat a well-balanced diet? And she said, yes, I do. And I said, and, and do you take any supplements? And she said, yeah, I take an RDA multivitamin. I said, well, why on earth would you do that? You know, if you believe you get all the nutrients you need from a well-balanced diet, yeah. why on earth would you then want to take an RDA multivitamin? You know, you can't cut it both ways. So the answer really is that it's just bollocks. If you, <laughs> if you want to know how much vitamin C, for example, or how, I mean, vitamin D, a few years ago, uh, I wrote an article that said you cannot get all the vitamins you need from a well-balanced diet everyone needs to supplement vitamin D in the winter months. Yeah. And I got had up by the Advertising Standards Authority, which have a line that says you can never imply that you can't get all the nutrients you need. Now, it, I sent them all the science. It's not about the science. You've broken rule number four. A few years later, the government announced everyone needs to supplement vitamin D. I know. You know. So I'm afraid to say that that. But they do. At least they do catch up with you, don't they? They catch up. But well, I think in a, maybe, in a time like this, they need yeah. to be ahead of the game. Yeah, and also the thing is, we are just individuals. So the the British public are way ahead of, e.g., government or NHS on the subject of vitamin C. Sales have gone through the roof. If you survey the public, many people are aware that when you've got a cold, have some more vitamin C. You know, they, they put the money where the mouth is, so to speak. Yeah. 
So the public are ahead of the game. So I don't think that I can change the NHS or the government. I've been trying for 40 years, but I do think that I can change or influence an individual and their outcome on disease. So, you know, when lockdown happened, the first thing I did was to sit down and write it. You know, here it is. It's all science-based. You know, it tells you exactly what to do. And if I, can, if I can reach, my goal every day is to reach 100 people, you know, with straightforward, you know, logic and science and something that you can practically do. Patrick, and, can, we, yeah. can, can, we, can we just finish up then on what would you, what do you do yourself? What is your regime in terms of diet? You've told mm -hmm. us about the vitamins you take. Mm -hmm. And what about all the other vitamins, you know, vitamin E, you know, should we be taking all these other vitamins as well? They're all in here, you know. All right. So okay. this costs me, well, it would cost you less than half a Starbucks a day, right? It costs me a bit less. I get a discount. <laughs> but basically, I want my cells to always have an optimal supply of nutrients. I'll end with one slightly funny thing. But have you heard of telomeres? Yes. Telomeres. You've got, you know, the DNA spiral, the chromosome you see with all those DNA strands. When you make a new cell, you have to copy it. And every time you copy the, the blueprint to make a new cell, there's a little bit at the end, which is like the hard bit at the end of your shoelace that gets one degree shorter. And that's called your telomeres. And is when that you, like your aging, your aging, it gets shorter. Absolutely. Is that when you run out of sufficient telomere length you can't make new cells so it's the best biological predictor of death right so you can measure telomere length this whole area has exploded there are over thirty thousand studies on telomeres in in just a few years nobel prizes have been won and all the rest of it people are looking at what is associated with longer telomeres shorter telomeres you'll find everything that i'm doing the more omega-3, longer telomeres. More vitamin D, longer telomeres. More B vitamins, longer telomeres. Supplement takers, longer telomeres. Exercises, longer telomeres. Less stress, longer telomeres. Better sleep, longer telomeres, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when I hit uh, 60, I thought I'm going to get my telomere length measured. So thousands, hundreds of that, millions of people who had their telomeres. So we know what the average 20-year-old telomere length is and the average 60-year-old. And my telomere length was the average of a 29-year-old. How would you get it tested? It's a blood test. Yeah, I mean, it's a blood test. It's not cheap. It's about, you know, 300 pounds or something. But, you know, um, when you go on your, your, um, you know, your um, retreats in Wales, do you, do, do you offer all that as well for people? Uh, we don't do the telomere test as, you know, as such. That's kind of like a, a single thing. But on my retreats in Wales, I've got two kinds. I've got a four-day retreat, starts on Friday, ends on Monday, which is called Total Health Transformation. And um, it's both mind and body, you know, so we work on, on different factors. We have some meditation, some methods for reducing stress. We, you know, I'm kind of teaching everything I've learned, which is not all about nutrition. So I've learned a lot more outside of nutrition. And then I have a seven-day retreat, which, which, is, which is based on the five-day diet, which is five days of it. Then there's two days coming out of that and going on to the low-GL diet. And in all of these, you make all the foods. You, you, you know, you, you, we make them together. You learn everything yeah. so you can leave knowing what to do for yourself. 
And um, on that one, we are measuring your glucose, your ketones, we're measuring certain things as you go through, which is great because you can actually sort of see what's happening in your own biochemistry. Um, our human body is just an incredible thing. And to just take, I mean, this should be taught in school, just to take a little bit of time to learn, get interested. And, um, you know, the final thing is the, the vaccines are based on two premises. One is to boost your immune system's response against a virus. Yeah. So why not talk about what it is that boosts your immune system's strength? Things like vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, and so on and the negative effects of alcohol and stress and not sleeping and so on. The second is it's based on introducing herd immunity where you get you know, at least two thirds, if not more of the population, producing antibodies against a specific virus. And um, vitamins, a, a stronger immune system means a better response to a vaccine. So, so they can work with vaccines, even, you know, they are going to produce a vaccine. It's but we not, need to be it's totally not an either or. Yeah. You know, and, and you can't. I'm not drinking red wine today either, I'm drinking water. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's early. <laughs> but um, <laughs> if, you, if you believe in vaccines, you believe in herd immunity. Yeah. And you believe in the power of your immune system to react. And those are the two fundamental things that are going to happen if you start to explore how do you support and boost your immune system. You know, the flu vaccine has in some years been very ineffective. Last year was good, about 50% effective. The year before was bad, 10% effective in over 65 year olds. Why worse in older people than younger people? Because their immune system is not so strong. If you don't have a fully functioning immune system, I mean, let's assume I had COVID-19. My immune system is strong. It sees the virus, it attacks, it responds, it will build antibodies. I'll test myself <clears throat> in two weeks because it takes a while. So the difference between a vaccine responder and a non-responder is actually the strength of the immune system. So it's illogical to spend all this money you know, on vaccines that are going to be ineffective in people with weak immune systems who are the people who are actually at you risk. Know, risk of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that brings you right back to who's actually dying or getting critically ill. What is different about those people to the people who aren't? Um, and how can we help those people, we, yeah. you know, boost their immune system? Yeah. You know? And if it turns out that diabetes is a big factor, it's <clears throat> reversible, yeah. you know, and it doesn't cost much. I mean, it's so easy to save billions in the National Health Service. I've got 10,000 nutritional therapists. If a, every day, 800 people are diagnosed with type two diabetes, every day, 800 people are diagnosed with dementia, which is largely a preventable disease. If a doctor prescribed a type two diabetic, you've got to go and spend half a day on a workshop, which are run every week, and there's 10 places where they're run or whatever. I mean, you could literally hire 25 nutritional therapists to run mini workshops for diabetics to teach them yeah. what actually works with previous diabetics who've reversed it, seeing and tasting the foods, you know, like having oats, but adding some nuts, you know, it's not difficult stuff. Yeah. And um, people would feel empowered. They would see it working. They would try it out. It cuts the, not only the drug bill, but you know, if you sort out 
diabetes and dementia. My group at Oxford, headed by Professor David Smith, have now produced 73% less brain shrinkage and no virtual, um, no further memory loss in people with pre-dementia by giving them sufficient B vitamins, especially B12, dirt cheap, non-patentable, plus enough omega-3. The biggest problem, unfortunately, that underlies all this is that none of these nutrients are patentable, none of them are profitable. And unfortunately, that, you know, who funds the studies, who funds the journals, how does it all work? And it's, if vitamins could be patented, or if drugs could not be patented, uh, it would change things overnight. Yeah, and, I agree and, with that. You know, and, and that's the fundamental issue. We need governments to fund research on things that can't be profitable. No pharma company is going to fund research on vitamins. But I think no, if, yeah. but if, if you're, what you're talking about is changing the whole system because all the PPE shortages, the ventilators, all that we've seen being played out on TV, you know, in, in New York with, um, Mayor, not the mayor, sorry, the Governor Cuomo, I thought he's brilliant. But if they if they had less people going to the hospitals and the doctors because they looked after their own health and took, you know, took responsibility for it, they'd have a lot more money to spend on the essential kits that's gonna save lives. Well, totally. And we've been I've I'm part of a group called the um uh, NHS frontline immune support and we've raised twenty grand. And we've now got over 500 doctors and nurses in ICU units that we supply vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc to. So, you know, we're putting it, they love it. They feel much yes. better for it. They're getting less infections. We're doing what I hope the NHS, you know, would do in the future. If you're going to protect yourself from the outside, why not protect yourself from the inside? Think of the logic of it. If we know, and we do know, by the way, that of those critically ill, um, uh, uh, 55% have very low vitamin D, 2% of the critically ill have optimal vitamin D. Of those who get very mild infection, 98% have optimal vitamin D. I don't think a nurse or a doctor put into a high risk viral environment should be there unless they've had their vitamin D level checked and yeah. raised into the optimal range. That's PPE on the inside. Yeah. You know, these things are doable. But as my dear friend, Professor uh, 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 Robert Lustig in America uh, says, these diseases, the majority of diseases from which we die, are not druggable. They're foodable. And until food is at the very top of the National Health Service, until nutrition is at the very top, nothing really is going to change. And at the moment, it's at the very bottom. And there lies the problem. Um, of course, I'm going to work on reaching as many people every day as I possibly can, because I think that that can save lives. But we do need, you know, this paradigm. A change shift. of thinking. We you know, do need a change of thinking. As Einstein said, you know, the definition <clears throat> of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expect different results. Um, Patrick, yeah. you're doing a fantastic job. Um, Listen, I want to perhaps we'll do another conversation in the next few weeks. I'd love that. Talk about, you know, dementia, perhaps, because, I mean, COVID-19 is, you know, taken over the headlines, but dementia has been the biggest yeah. 
you know, the biggest news story with health in the last couple of years. No, and, and I mean, you I'd know, love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Exactly. No, we should do that because nobody wants to have their relative die of dementia. It's, you know, it's the terrible thing no, and no. it's not necessary. And I'd love to talk about that. The science on that is impeccable. Well, Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You go back now to saving the planet and I'll, <laughs> and I'll speak to you very soon. All right. All the best. Cheers, buddy. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.